Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A fever, body aches, and fatigue may appear like common flu-like symptoms, but they can quickly progress to kidney and liver failure. And in 2014, for many, it even meant death. It has spread across borders, infecting the West African countries of Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone. And they're burying eight, nine, ten people a day sometimes. I'm journalist Erica Bella. In this episode, we go back to 2014 and take you to the front lines with people who fought this disease that ravaged parts of West Africa. And we discover where it came from and how it spread so quickly. This is Global News What Happened To the Ebola virus. I know it's hard to think about anything other than COVID-19, but that is why I was brought back to that time, eight years ago, when all we heard about was Ebola. An urgent effort is underway tonight to contain the spread of Ebola. Ebola is now spreading further and faster than anyone expected. And this is the largest outbreak of Ebola we've ever seen. This virus, if it is not taken care of, will be a global pandemic. But then it sort of just disappeared, at least from the headlines and news programs we watched. But for those living in the communities affected by the outbreaks, the impact of Ebola is still very much present. The memories of battling the illness, of overrun hospitals, of frontline workers being overwhelmed with patients working tirelessly, of having to make the tough choice of whom to save. Those who battled with Ebola and lost now deal with the grief. So what is this disease that ravaged West Africa? According to the World Health Organization, it first appeared in two simultaneous outbreaks back in 1976, one in South Sudan and the other in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The outbreak in DRC happened in a village near the Ebola River, and that's where the illness gets its name. Dr. Robert Fowler is a critical care physician at Sunnybrook Hospital and the University of Toronto, and has worked with the World Health Organization as a consultant clinician on the Ebola outbreaks. Ebola as a disease ends up being caused by this virus that is usually in a reservoir of animals in endemic regions. And those animals could be primates, they could be bats, they could be other animals. That then skips into humans and then is spread from person to person, especially in densely populated areas, oftentimes when people are living close together and maybe don't have the opportunities uh, that you have in some places of the world to, um, to have sort of, you know, regular breaks in that transmission pathway through hand washing and, um, and disinfection. And so the virus, once it uh, gets into your system, usually through mucous membranes, so that could be your eyes, your nose, or your mouth, or really rarely through a cut in the skin, I suppose, then causes a kind of an illness that gets people certainly febrile, uh, feeling unwell, very nonspecific symptoms. When you think about a lot of different kinds of infections, certainly in endemic areas, it's hard to differentiate Ebola from malaria, for instance, in the first many days. 
But after the first maybe four or five days, it tends to produce a gastrointestinal illness predominantly. And so you might feel sick to your stomach, throw up, you may have loose bowel movements and, and then bad diarrhea. And then that provides the mechanism for Ebola to spread person to person. Uh, so you have virus on your body, usually because of throwing up or diarrhea, and you come into contact with other people that then contract it, typically through mucous membranes, eyes, nose, and mouth, and then the cycle starts anew. And in areas where uh, someone has Ebola virus, they're symptomatic, it's spreading if, uh, if you're in close contact with lots of people, and there's not an opportunity to break that chain with sanitation, then you, uh, you end up having, having a, a growing, growing outbreak. Two years into a global pandemic, we're familiar with case fatality rates. That's the proportion of people diagnosed with a disease who end up dying from it. With Ebola, the numbers are staggering. The historical mortality rates for Ebola probably before the West African outbreak were in the range of about 70%. Um, so very high. Oftentimes outbreaks would start and end before much of the world really knew that it was happening. And usually in places where there was very little medical care to support people through an illness. The World Health Organization said the 2014 outbreak in West Africa was the largest and most complex Ebola outbreak since the virus was first discovered in 1976 meaning there were more cases and deaths from this outbreak than all others combined. And it spread, starting in Guinea, then moving across land borders to Sierra Leone and Liberia. The WHO estimates over 28,000 were sick with the disease, and more than 11,000 people died. But eight years ago, as the virus spread... Much of the world was unaware of what was unfolding in West Africa. That is, until one American doctor brought the horrors of Ebola home after being infected with the virus himself. In October 2013, Dr. Brantley, his wife, and two children left their home in Texas and arrived in Liberia. And he says the culture shock was immediate, particularly in his practice. I've told a story many times about the very the very first patient I took care of at Elwa Hospital was a 12-year-old boy with type 1 diabetes who had diabetic ketoacidosis, a very, very serious, very dangerous condition where the blood sugar soars very high. Um, I had treated that condition many times in my residency training. I was very comfortable with the management of DKA. Um, but as I started to take care of this little boy, I realized I had virtually none of the resources available to me that I had always used to guide that management. None of the lab tests that I needed to know how the, the treatment we were giving him was progressing, whether it was working or not, whether it was working too fast or not. Um, it was, uh, it's like flying blind in an airplane with no, no instrumentation to tell you you're your airspeed or your altitude. And that, and it was a tragic situation. That little boy ended up dying of DKA. And that was my, that was my very first experience in this sort of life of service in the differences in the medical system in a place like Liberia compared to where I had trained in Fort Worth, Texas. 
people sometimes die because of the lack of resources. He recalled running out of things he used to take for granted, like rubber gloves, and more essential equipment was just not available. Cardiac monitors, um, being able to give oxygen readily to patients, ventilators, breathing machines, like we had none of, we had no ventilators. We had no, I think the only cardiac monitor we had was in the operating room to monitor patients during surgery. So things that we would use for intensive care or even kind of a step-down progressive care unit, uh, we had none of those equipment materials. Um, It was, you know, a manual blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope and your hands and your eyes and your ears to kind of assess what's what's going on with the patient. Our laboratory uh, ability was quite limited. We did have a lab, and, and our lab techs were very good, but the range of things we could test for were, were quite limited. It's really hard. In my, my practice of family medicine in America, I, I did four years of family medicine residency plus an, with an extra year of obstetrics, surgical obstetrics training. I could count on, on less than one hand the number of patients that I took care of in my clinic who died during that, that four years. In a setting like Liberia, you encounter death much more often on a daily basis. And that's hard mentally and emotionally, um, professionally. You know, it makes you question whether you're really any good at what you're doing or not. In those conditions, Dr. Brantley said he learned to navigate the medical system in Liberia. But nothing would have prepared him or his colleagues for what they would face next. In June 2014, there was an Ebola outbreak in Guinea. The country borders Liberia and Sierra Leone. And Dr. Brantley said the disease spread quickly. There's a region where the borders of Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia all come together. And people in that community, they cross those borders on a daily basis. There's a lot of cross-border business and travel. So anything that affects one country in that region, it's going to spread to the others. So it started in Guinea and spread quickly to Liberia. And the very first cases in Liberia were in that northern area. There was a patient who fled, who was diagnosed with Ebola and fled the treatment center in Foya and came down through Monrovia and out to an area near the airport. And that put us all on high alert. And we were concerned about all of the people she had contact with along that route and how many, you know, dozens and dozens of contacts she potentially had. In the end, there was no community spread from that case, but that kind of put us on high alert and and we started preparing earnestly. The first patient that we took care of actually was sent to our hospital in an ambulance from another hospital in the capital because by the time the outbreak kind of a second wave of it came through Liberia, uh, our hospital had the only prepared functioning isolation unit in all of Monrovia. So the, the Ministry of Health called us and said, we have two patients who we think have Ebola. They've had some other family members die and we want to send them to your facility. So we began activating our team, trying to recruit nurses to work that night shift in the Ebola treatment unit. 
and an ambulance arrived with a woman and her uncle in the back of the ambulance, both of them very sick. The uncle actually died in the back of the ambulance. And that woman became our first patient. We were we took her into the treatment unit and cared for her there for a couple of days. She initially began to improve, or we thought she was improving. And then after a couple of days, her condition deteriorated rapidly and she and she died. And that was the the beginning of our experience with patients with Ebola. From that day, Dr. Brantley said the outbreak intensified and it put enormous strain on the healthcare system. Our isolation unit only had six beds initially. And so we would have two or four patients there. And we'd have to keep those patients, in theory, we were we would have had to keep them three weeks. But every patient that we had who tested positive for Ebola in those first six or seven weeks, every one of them died except for one patient who was a a young boy who had tested positive. He never got terribly sick, but he survived and was able to be discharged from the treatment unit. The, The numbers increased rapidly over those first weeks. Of the many obstacles Dr. Brantley and his colleagues faced, testing proved to be one of the biggest ones. The test for Ebola has to be, a, the sample has to be blood. So you have to draw blood from the person that you want to test. And then it's a PCR test. People are familiar with that terminology now. Um, we had to collect the patient's blood and then send the vials of blood to the national lab, which thankfully we were in the capital. So we were only like a 45 minute drive from the lab that was doing the tests. But that meant collecting the patient's blood, keeping the specimen at the right temperature and getting it transported to that lab. It, it was a challenge because sometimes we would have a patient who arrived in the afternoon or evening, we would draw their blood, but then it wouldn't get picked up for transport to the lab until the next morning. And if that result came back negative, we would have to question so many steps of that of that process to say, okay, was the sample even valid after it sat in a cooler all night long? And so we might have to, There, I remember one time we had drawn a sample, then no one came to pick it up that night. So when they came the next morning, we said, hold on, don't, please don't take that sample. Let us go in and draw a new sample right now. So you can have a fresh sample and we can make sure that results are valid. Knowing how quickly the disease spread, Dr. Brantley said obtaining a sample from a sick patient had healthcare workers on high alert. Because Ebola was spread through, is spread through contact, direct contact with bodily fluids, with infected bodily fluids. So we weren't as worried about respiratory, but we had to have every centimeter of skin covered, every possible gap in your suit sealed up. At that time, there was no treatment for Ebola. It was just supportive care. It was making sure that people stay hydrated, giving them vitamins, treating their pain with with Tylenol. Even that was very challenging. It's hard to take vital signs when you're wearing that PPE and you can't use a stethoscope. It was hard to give IV fluids to patients because we would have to stay with them and try to get the fluids in quickly 
Because if we left a patient connected to an IV line and they became delirious and pulled out their IV, they could bleed to death. It's a hemorrhagic disease. And they would be putting everyone else around them, the healthcare workers coming in to take care of them subsequently, would be putting them at risk with their bodily fluids being exposed. For weeks, Dr. Kent Brantley watched patients succumb to the Ebola virus and witnessed the grief of their loved ones and felt the ripple effect the virus had on the community he was there to help. So it was physically exhausting. It was also emotionally very hard because we were seeing so many patients die. And that really weighs on your mind and on your heart. You know, these are people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. And they could be my mother or father or brother or sister. And then you put on top of that the mental stress of knowing that you're dealing with a seemingly universally fatal disease and you're having to do things that that were not a part of my normal job as a doctor to prepare dead bodies, put them in the body bags. Like that was not a task I normally did in the hospital. But in the Ebola treatment unit, we all had to work together to do those things. So it was incredibly challenging. As the outbreak ravaged communities, the rest of the world was still generally unaware of what was happening. That is, until a few months later. July 23rd, 2014. It's a day that's seared into Dr. Kent Brantley's memory. I woke up on a Wednesday morning and I just didn't feel good. I had diarrhea, my stomach hurt. I just felt bad. I didn't have a fever, but I had been treating patients with Ebola for about seven weeks. And I knew that I needed to keep myself isolated until I knew for sure what was was happening with me. So I stayed in my house that day and some of my colleagues actually came into my house in PPE and drew my blood and sent it off for a test. And that first test was negative, but our protocol required waiting 72 hours and repeating a second test. And during that 72 hours, my condition deteriorated a lot. And it became clear, I think, to those who are caring for me that I probably had Ebola. I developed fever, vomiting. Subsequently, I even developed some of the hemorrhagic symptoms. I could see these same symptoms developing in me that I had watched in the patients I had cared for. Uh, And that test that was done on the 26th of July came back positive. Dr. Brantley was one of approximately 10,000 people in Liberia infected with Ebola. My first response was like very pragmatic, logical, like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this situation? Like, how are we going to treat me as a patient? But then I immediately thought of my wife and my children. And I said, how am I going to tell my wife? How am I going to tell her that I'm probably going to die? As he came to terms with his diagnosis in Liberia, the neighboring country of Sierra Leone would soon be engulfed with outbreaks and would eventually have the highest number of cases with over 14,000 people affected by the virus. Victor Cocker lives in Sierra Leone, and at the time of the West African Ebola epidemic, he was working for the Ministry of Health and Sanitation for the Moyomba district. Where I used to work as a surveillance officer and double as the monitoring and evaluation officer 
for, for all health activities in the district. Um, at the community level, it was very, very serious. You know, when we had the outbreak, it was a new disease in the country. So it was strange, even among health workers. Early on in the outbreak, Victor identified an issue around messaging. We got it wrong. Because telling community people or you telling people that if you are infected with the Ebola virus disease, you will definitely die. So that message created a whole lot of problems for us. So we started all over telling people that if you go early to the health facility, you will definitely, the chances of you surviving is very, very great. But in many ways, the damage was done. As part of his job, Victor traveled to a remote village where a prominent leader in the community had contracted the virus. He said the woman died, and many in the village attended her funeral. A few days after, people started dying in that village. That village, it was a very small community of around 150 people. By the time we went back to go and see them after a week, we spoke with them. You know, that was when they started confessing to us, telling us the story that they almost lost 50 people in that village. They felt there was a cost in the village, you know. So we encouraged them to go back and call other members of the village. So they came out and we also screened them to see whether there are are more uh, people with symptoms. We saw few. We transported, we took them from the community you know, in the ambulance, took them to the holding center, and later they were transported to the treatment center. Fortunately for for us, we took four of them, four of them came back, healed, and we took them to the village. So that was when they realized that, indeed, if they report their symptoms early enough, they can survive. We We really saw the devastation the outbreak, you know, left in that particular village for those few weeks that they got the virus. The Ebola outbreak became personal for Victor, too. It almost seems like everyone knew at least one person affected by the disease. I have extended family members that passed away, about two of them. In my own town, in my own town, there was a small village, a suburb, just close to my town, called Mombasa. I had, a, there was a family of six in that particular household. We lost all of them. And after the end of the outbreak, it took time for me to recover from that particular tragedy. Despite all the pain and suffering that was unfolding in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea, the rest of the world was, as yet, unaware of what was happening. It was really difficult. It was really sad. You know, it's difficult to explain. As a citizen of your country, you go down to a community like that and see, you know, all those things. It was, it was very, very difficult for them. But we, for us, you know, but we had no alternative because by then we are the frontline workers. We are there to see how best we can save lives. Meanwhile, back in Liberia, Dr. Kent Brantley was unsure if he would survive the virus. 
As the illness progressed, options became available that weren't available to other frontline workers. I was not the only American healthcare worker who was sick at the time. My friend, Nancy Wrightbull, who had been volunteering with us at the Ebola treatment unit, was also sick, was diagnosed the same day that I was. And I remember talking to Nancy on the phone. She and I would call each other and, and talk on the phone. She was in her house being treated and I was in my house. And they talked to her about this ZMAT antibodies. And she said, what are you going to do, Kent? Because I'm going to do whatever you, whatever you do. And I said, well, I think I would take the antibodies, Nancy. So Nancy and I both received a dose of ZMAP in Liberia. After receiving the first dose of this experimental treatment, Dr. Brantley was one of two healthcare workers flown to the U.S. to receive medical care. And that woke up the world to the plight of those living in West Africa. The deadly Ebola virus is now on its way to North America. Two Americans infected with the disease in West Africa are being flown back to the United States for treatment. And at the scene of the outbreak, the World Health Organization now says Ebola is moving faster than efforts to control it. Dr. Brantley was flown to Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. He was the first person with the Ebola virus to be treated in the U.S. I was evacuated after my first dose and taken to Atlanta, they were able to get more from the manufacturer and give me the the second and third doses as a three-dose treatment course. So there had been three doses in Liberia. I received one, Nancy received the other two, and then she was also evacuated and brought to Emory and received her third dose there. Infected Americans, Dr. Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightball, who had been working as missionaries in Liberia, are now showing dramatic improvements after being administered what many are calling a secret serum. Dr. Linda Mobula is a senior health specialist with the World Bank and is one of the faculty of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. As the world learned of Dr. Kent Brantley's brush with Ebola, she was on the front lines in West Africa. Dr. Brantley's diagnosis was kind of a blessing and, and a curse in a way. I mean, it was very challenging for him, but it also brought a lot of attention to the outbreak. And um, there was a lot of mobilization of resources after that. Financial resources, human resources, many non-governmental organizations, UN agencies started coming in after that to help, um, not just Liberia, but the other countries as well, Sierra Leone and Guinea. So I think the biggest barrier was the lack of attention at the time. In August 2014, the World Health Organization declared the Ebola outbreak an international health concern. Government has declared this now as a humanitarian crisis that is above the control of the national government. In agreement today, the WHO committed $100 million to stop the transmission. A massive global effort was underway to help the affected countries, and it would take years before Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia would declare the outbreaks over. In March 2016, almost two years to the day from when Dr. Kent Brantley saw his first patient with Ebola, the WHO lifted the International Public Health Emergency Designation. The outbreak in Sierra Leone was over. And months later, June 2016, the outbreaks in Guinea and Liberia also ended. So how did this happen? 
Dr. Robert Fowler, the Toronto critical care physician who worked with the WHO, says the outbreaks were contained in part because of an experimental antibody treatment created in Canada, which hoped to prevent the high mortality rate seen early on. It was tested in West Africa and proved to be successful. And the trial that was done in West Africa was done in very small numbers near the later stages of the outbreak. Yet, uh, even in small numbers, it gave a sense that mortality may be reduced in a clinical trial. You're looking at, okay, if we can bring mortality down from 70 to 40 by giving just best medical care that's available in the context where you're treating patients, can we do better than that? And and the first antibody trial was promising, looking like maybe we could get another 15% reduction in, in mortality, which is terrific. We just don't see that sort of effect size for uh, most medications in most conditions in, in any part of the world. Um, and so this was very encouraging both on the, the notion of using antibodies and also in the specific treatment of Ebola. While the treatment certainly helped, he said it wasn't what ended the outbreaks in West Africa. The thing that stops these outbreaks are virtually never the treatments. They're always sort of grounded in, in public health interventions. And I would say throughout West Africa, as an outsider's sort of, you know, look at the, the arc of, of that outbreak, when the population and when public health was able to start to make inroads on the notion of this is a viral infection that's spread person to person, we can stop the transmission by recognizing when someone's sick that we need to break that transmission chain through sanitation, hand washing, keeping people both safe and, and, and isolated from those that are sick, promoting people going to hospital where you could both treat them, but also, you know, take them out of an environment where they may infect other people. All of those public health maneuvers, getting the population sort of behind a strategy in the community uh, is the thing that, that, you know, ends these outbreaks. Vaccination certainly helps, and we have seen that the risk of people getting Ebola after a population is vaccinated around index infections, very, very helpful. But vaccine was introduced relatively late into the West African outbreak and, and had some effect for sure, but, um, but I would say the, the vast majority of the, the reason that that outbreak stopped was because the population you know, was able to stop Ebola getting behind public health measures. Public health measures coupled with advancements in treatment and vaccines ultimately led to the resolve of the 2014 West Africa Ebola outbreak. But those touched by the disease had a long road of recovery ahead. It was not really easy because we are still seeing the survivors in the streets and we are seeing them with complications. Some Some of them with eyesight complications, you know, some of them with skin complications, you know. So all of them, we are seeing them in, in, in the communities. Victor Cocker says on the front lines in Sierra Leone, the challenge for survivors of Ebola isn't just physical complications. There's also the stigma that comes with the disease. Community members were afraid of even coming very close to survivors. So all that trauma, all that stress, you know, it was a form of discriminating them. Dr. Mobula continued to work on the front lines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And she says the stigma stems from errors in public health messaging in West Africa. And I think there there's a lot of misconception 
um, a lot, many rumors around still being able to contract Ebola from a survivor. And because there had been so much stigma around being in isolation, going to a treatment unit, potentially dying, I think communities were scared. I think it came from fear of actually contracting Ebola again. She recalled stories of people being ostracized by the communities they called home. One of a woman um, in Guinea who contracted Ebola, was treated, went home, and her husband divorced her. And he said, I do not want you um, as my wife any longer. And she had to take her child away. So he kicked her out of the house. And she had to, she left her home with her child. Her child ended up contracting Ebola himself. And she carried her child on her back for days um, trying to seek care. And his child ended up dying. So she had to deal with the fact that her husband did not want her any longer, divorced her. But she also lost her child. And the community she used to live in um, did not accept her any longer. So think about the devastating effects or the, the toll that takes on a human being in the long run without having additional support. There, that's one story. There's another story of a woman in Guinea as well who you know, used to sell goods at the market and her business was quite successful. But when she recovered from Ebola and went back to her business, the community basically said, we're not buying from you anymore. They would call her goods. They would say she, um, her goods were affected by Ebola. They would call her Ebola and she wasn't able to sell anything anymore. Um, the stigma had an, an economic impact on um, this woman's life and probably on the lives of many other people who would not be able to go back to work. They were too tired. Um, many individuals experienced a lot of fatigue seizures, joint pain, and were unable to return to work. While the ripple effects of the 2014 West African Ebola epidemic were being felt, there have been other, smaller outbreaks in the region more recently. None bigger than the 2018 outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Dr. Mobula said the outbreak started in 2018 and lasted two years. 3,500 cases were reported and over 2,000 people died. So if the outbreaks were declared over, I wondered where were these new cases of Ebola coming from? Some of them were actually due to sexual transmission of a survivor to another community member, therefore creating another outbreak. So uh, we're seeing more, more Ebola outbreaks occur. Uh, West Africa, there's another outbreak in, in Guinea. Um, last year, and this was also due to sexual transmission from a survivor from the 2014 outbreak that had persistence of the virus um, since 2014. So that's, so we're seeing, we're learning a lot more about the impact sexual transmission can have in terms of resurgence of, of outbreaks. So the, the uh, 2018 10th Ebola outbreak was the second largest outbreak after the West African outbreak. This type of transmission occurs after a previously infected man has unprotected intercourse. The WHO is recommending that male survivors use condoms for 12 months from the onset of symptoms or until their semen tests negative twice for Ebola virus. I think it's a question of just monitoring semen samples in men to make sure that they're actually negative. So good follow-up care um, and setting up a system whereby men can access condoms, number one, and willing to use condoms, 
when engaging in sexual activity, but also making sure that their, uh, their semen samples are negative. So having laboratory systems in place, um, that there's no treatment necessarily. I think there had been uh, hope that um, certain therapies would help reduce the amount of virus in semen after, the, after they survive from Ebola, but there hasn't, that hasn't been the case. There hasn't, there's nothing right now that actually leads to decreased, um, uh, I guess, uh, viral load, right, in, in semen um, after, after uh, men, men survive Ebola. But uh, this is definitely something that needs to be studied a little bit more. Uh, we've seen resurgence again in, in Guinea um, after, um, so from 2014 to 2021, um, after seven years. And that was really surprising to everybody, um, to the scientific community, that you'd have viral persistence for that long. And there probably was, um, and there was actual uh, sexual transmission during the West Africa, African Ebola outbreak as well, but because it hadn't, wasn't recognized as an official mode of transmission at the beginning of the outbreak it was probably occurring quite regularly. And so once it was identified, then you're able to put into place uh, better measures for control. So, you know, doing a lot of education around the use of condoms and sexual activity after, after recovery. It's been eight years since the world witnessed the worst Ebola outbreak in history. And since then, Dr. Mobula said, out of the many lessons learned, the most crucial was around how to communicate with the community. I think sometimes it's best to actually take a step back and let the local community and trust local community enough to, to respond. I think there's a lot of fear around Ebola. Every time there's an Ebola outbreak, everybody um, wants to respond quickly. I think there's, there's this balance between needing to respond quickly to prevent further spread um, and to prevent another West Africa from happening. And, um, and just saying, okay, I'm going to build capacity within this local community and trust them enough to respond. I think that's, there's that balance. It's a message echoed by Victor, who lives in Sierra Leone. The EVD outbreak in 2014 taught us a lesson as well as a country that for us to fight outbreak, we must come together as community members. And uh, it clearly shows during the outbreak when it started, you know, the health workers felt the response was just for health workers. So the community people were left out until when we decided to include the permanent chiefs, the local leaders, the local authorities, stakeholders. When we brought them together, you know, to help us fight the outbreak, that was why we succeeded. That is one thing. I will applaud our country for, you know, people are really resilient. For Dr. Kent Brantley, the man who shed a light on what was unfolding in West Africa, the work started the second he was released from hospital. I tried to leverage in every way possible, tried to leverage my experience in every way possible for the benefit of people in West Africa. That was in large part why we held a press conference when I was leaving Emory was so that I could ask people to come to the aid of West Africa, to pray for the people in West Africa who were suffering and to do something about it. And I was given incredible opportunities to meet with President Obama and encourage him, tell him my 
from my perspective, what kind of response was needed from the United States and from the rest of the world to come to the aid of the people of Liberia and Guinea and Sierra Leone. I was given the opportunity to testify to different committees in both the United States Senate and the House of Representatives uh, regarding the U.S. response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And I spoke to numerous groups of healthcare workers, physicians, nurses, students, encouraging them to not only take serious the preparations in their own practices and hospitals to be prepared in case there were cases of Ebola in the United States, but also to do something really tangible and help, to give money, to volunteer, to take a leave of absence from your job and go to West Africa and take care of people who are dying and need help. And I spent, I spent many months trying to be a, an advocate and a, a help from afar to my friends, my colleagues, and, and my neighbors in West Africa. Eight years later, Dr. Kent Brantley is back on the front lines. He's currently working at the Christian Mission Hospital in Zambia under an organization called the Christian Health Services Corps. He says sometimes he thinks back to 2014 and reflects on what he endured. To be honest, my illness came before the height, the worst part of the epidemic in Liberia. And I, I watched that unfold on TV, and it was heartbreaking and devastating. I had friends who were still in Liberia who, who have the experience of, you know, they remember driving down the road and seeing dead bodies along the road because people weren't seeking care in the treatment centers. They would die and no one, everyone was afraid to, rightfully so, to, to go near a dead body. Uh, it was it was like something from a horror movie. I wasn't there for that. I didn't experience that height, that peak of the epidemic, but it was so traumatic on so many levels for people. I suffered my own sort of trauma through this experience, but it's nothing compared to the individual and societal trauma that people in West Africa experienced. In, in many regards, got treated like something of a celebrity in the U.S. Uh, I was asked to come speak in a lot of places. I was given opportunities like, like meeting the president and speaking to Congress, things that are really remarkable opportunities. Whereas my, my fellow Ebola survivors in West Africa were and, and, and on some level continue to be stigmatized. There, there are so many lessons we can take from the Ebola epidemic in West Africa uh, regarding access to healthcare, to healthcare equity among populations of people. There are all kinds of lessons that can be learned, but I think the most universal takeaway is the same message that I tried to share for years following my experience, and that is the importance of choosing compassion for your fellow human being over fear. You have to choose to have compassion for people rather than letting fear be the, the driving motivation in your approach to other people. We're all neighbors, whether we live in West Africa or Central Africa and Zambia where I live now, or in the United States, 
whether we like it or not, we live in a global community. And what affects one of us affects all of us. And the sooner we recognize that and respond to that reality with compassion for our fellow human beings, the better off we will all be. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I want to take a moment to thank Dr. Kent Brantley, Dr. Robert Fowler, and Dr. Linda Mobula and Victor Cocker, and all those healthcare workers on the front lines during the West African Ebola outbreak. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kafour and Rob Johnson. Thanks goes to Emily Denseeth, who helped with Chasing. Also, a special thanks goes to Drew Hasselback, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us to grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.